Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 162 of the show, and it's June the 21st, 2023, as I record this. On today's interview, we have Dr. Sarah Lewis, who is a neuroscientist specializing in the biology of childhood movement disorders, and a longtime historical martial artist who started in the SCA in 1999, where she is known as Perrin de la Serena. Since 2016, Sarah has been with the Phoenix Society for Historical Swordsmanship, where she has written many articles on improving diversity and inclusiveness in historical martial arts, and has written reports on the challenges facing women rapey offences in the SCA, which we discuss in the episode. Sarah has also produced a series of videos on applying the neuroscience of learning motor skills to teaching historical combat. We start our conversation by talking about a traumatic injury that she received during longsword training. She explains what led to the injury and the consequences for her personally and the lack of consequences for the instructor responsible. And yes, this is not one of those cases where the instructor was technically responsible because they are the person present who is responsible for everything. But actually, this chap was being an absolute dick and uh, is in, was entirely and maliciously responsible, I think, for what happened. So you'll get all the details in the interview. So on Sword People this week, I am doing a Q&A get-together uh, on Sunday, the 25th of June, 7pm UK time. You can find the details in the Sal space on swordpeople.com. We'll be playing my card game, Audacia, or rather, I'll be explaining how to play and doing some demo games and everyone can have a go. I am sort of assuming that you will already have a copy of the game, so two decks, or at least one deck, so you can play against somebody else who has a deck. And... Um, if you'd like to join us, that sounds like your sort of thing, go to swordpeople.com and you'll find it in the SAL space. I am just back from the International Rapier Seminar held in Warsaw last weekend. It was absolutely fantastic. So the first order of business is a heartfelt Cienkuje and gracias to the organizers, especially Lorenzo Braski for inviting me. He was the very man who introduced me to the mighty Poron in Spain in 2012. And Carol, who drove all the way out to the Ryanair airport to get me. And that is mm, maybe slightly less than halfway to my house from Warsaw. Yes, the Ryanair airport is miles out of town. Anyway, the event kicked off at 5pm on the Friday, so I spent all day in Warsaw being a tourist, mostly at the Warsaw Museum, which had a special exhibition on the reconstruction of Warsaw after the Nazis wantonly destroyed it. I mean, they seriously destroyed it. 65% of the city was completely demolished. About 80% was badly damaged after the uprising of 1944. I didn't know much about the city before I got there, and I absolutely loved the place. Um, and the sheer scale of the clearing of the rubble and the rebuilding they did after the war beggars the imagination, especially when you realize it was done with picks, shovels and horse-drawn carts. And this was in a country that had been marched all over by Nazis and Soviets and you know, the Second World War was not kind to Poland. So um, if you're walking around the old town, it looks like you would imagine you know, the old town of Warsaw would look, you know, it sort of, it looks old. Um, the buildings seem to date back to perhaps the early 1700s, that sort of thing. But actually, they were all reconstructed um, after the after the demolition in 1944. So 
is a very, very impressive feat of um, rebuilding that the Poles pulled off. Yeah, as you can probably hear in my voice, it absolutely blew me away. So the event began with a get-together um, on the Friday evening, a bit of sparring, lots of chatting, and I got to meet a student I've been interacting with pretty much weekly since 2020, and I know he listens to the podcast religiously and was one of the people who was most disappointed when we went to a fortnightly rather than weekly schedule. So hello, Jason. It was lovely to see you. Um, I taught two classes on the Saturday, How to Train, followed immediately by How to Teach. Um, I can summarize them for you. Um, the first class was Run a Diagnostic, Fix the Weakest Link, Run the Diagnostic Again. Fairly straightforward. And the second class was Generating the Optimal Rate of Failure in Your Students. So I basically took um, my fundamental training ideas and fundamental how to teach ideas and sort of compressed them into two 90-minute classes. These ideas are very simple, but they are not easy to apply, um, which is why we have to work on them. Um, the classes were pretty well attended, and I think people enjoyed them. I got some nice feedback afterwards. Um, and during the afternoon, I dropped in and out of watching classes by the other instructors, and I got to fence with Emilia Skerman, who was in episode 75 of the podcast. Um, I also got to catch up with my friend Alberto Bonprezzi from Spain, who I haven't seen, hadn't seen since my trip to Spain in 2012. I also met Jorge from Mexico, who persuaded me to part with my proof copy of the Duelist Companion 2nd Edition. And I should perhaps mention that the 2nd Edition of the Duelist Companion is now available at swordsgold.shop in all the usual formats. So full colour hardback, um, black and white paperback, and ebook. So um, hie thee unto swordsgold.shop and get yourself a copy if that's your sort of thing. Saturday night, there was the sort of traditional... This is the party night for an event. Um, and I actually, I was, I was exhausted, to be honest. I was kind of knackered. So, because, um, you know, travel and meeting lots of people and not getting enough sleep and that kind of thing. So I pretty much stayed off the source and got to bed at a reasonable time. Um, but it was great fun. And I met quite a few people whose names I cannot possibly pronounce because they're Polish names and they were spoken, they were told to me um, in a very noisy restaurant party atmosphere. And, you know, it's hard enough. I'm very sorry, my Polish friends, but it's very, it's hard enough to pronounce half of your names if, if they're like carefully enunciated in a quiet environment, <laughs> um, briefly introduced with a few glasses of wine inside one in a noisy environment. And there's just no way you're going to get it right. So anyway, it was a lovely evening though. And yes, I did find a couple of people who I think will make excellent podcast guests. So I'll, I'll get their names right for the, for the interviews. Um, Sunday um, was given over to the tournament. Um, the two best things about the tournament from my perspective was it didn't take up all of the available space and I didn't actually have to do any work on it. So I spent the entire day fencing people, which was lovely. So Elmar Radek, who went on to win the tournament. So congratulations to Radek. Um, Chris Hakey, the one Finn represented at the event. Uh, Cornelius and Martin. Um, each bout was different. Each one was delightful in its own way. Um, I would give out a special technical, this feels like fencing a specific historical system award to Martin, who is the organizer of Swords of the Renaissance which I attended last year and will return to in September this year. Martin and I, I think for both of us, it was the last bout of the weekend. So we were both absolutely shattered. But there were moments when it felt like Capoferro and Fabris, if they'd been watching, you know, I do Capoferro, Martin was doing Fabris, 
And, you know, if, if the masters had been watching us, they might not have been appallingly ashamed, <laughs> which is about as good as you can hope for in historical martial arts. Um, another highlight of the day was working with Damien on grounding and mechanics. Um, he'd asked for it in my how to train class and we sort of touched on it briefly, but we didn't have time to go into sufficient detail. Um, and so we spent some time together on the Sunday and that actually to me is like the most satisfying thing to do um, at these events is, you know, working with a, an individual student and seeing them progress like get noticeably better in five or ten minutes it's just a lovely feeling um unfortunately the event the in warsaw in june was unsurprisingly very hot so uh, i i was taking it sensibly and taking long breaks in between bouts and whatnot so um pedro velasco and tomas krasinski um you guys are first on my list for next time because we didn't get around to fencing this time, even though we'd said we would. So the overall feeling of the event, and this was the, perhaps the greatest thing about not just the fencing matches, but also the event itself. The whole thing felt really collegial. Sometimes somebody comes up to you and wants to fence you, and it's because, you know, they have a point to prove. There was not a shred of that the entire weekend. There was plenty of sort of competitive spirit. I mean, the people I fenced did their best to hit me and often succeeded. Um, but there was absolutely no kind of that personality-driven sort of uh, who really knows this stuff, all that kind of bullshit that can make fencing an unpleasant experience. So the whole thing was just lovely. That's partly down to the attendees, you know, their personality, what their, their motivations and whatnot, but also the spirit of the event itself. So um, the organisers have, put on an event that it was it was about love of the art rather than you know who's better than who it was just wonderful so it was a very international event uh, dinner on the sunday night was an absolute blast most of the attendees have gone home of course but on my table at a restaurant in a square in the old town you know you can picture it one of those beautiful old squares with you know restaurant sort of tented areas and sitting outside and there was even some medieval type people doing medieval type music behind us. Um, eight people on my table, no two of them were from the same country. So we had the USA, the UK, that was me, Denmark, Serbia, Bosnia, Bosnia, Finland, um, and Italy represented. And there was one other nationality and I've forgotten where, which one it was, but it was one of the European ones. Um, so, and I did talk quite a lot about flying and woodwork as well as swords and whatnot. So <laughs> if those sat around me got a bit bored of how to set up a, a woodworking plane, just please blame the vodka. Okay. One of the great advantages of this kind of event. So if you get the chance, you should absolutely go to this kind of event. Monday morning at breakfast, I was there with Ton Puey, Chris Lee Becker and Pedro Velasco. So two instructors from Spain, one from Germany. And we were just chatting about how to make a living as historical fencing instructors and various aspects of interpretation and all that sort of thing. And it's the classes are great, the tournament's great, all that stuff is fun. But I think a lot of the value in the event comes from this sort of serendipitous interaction with colleagues and friends. Um, it's just a delight. So my main takeaways from this trip are, firstly, that I should do more of them. And secondly, I need to work on my fencing fitness because my legs are killing me. I've spent most of the last three months working on lower back strength and I should have spent a bit more of it working on my 
ability to to lunge repeatedly. <laughs> so yes, my I'm limping about a bit because um, I mean no injuries or anything, but my legs are killing me. So that was fantastic. So yes, top recommendation for next year if you have a chance to go to the International Rapier Seminar, wherever it will be held, I would highly recommend doing so. And just a reminder, the Duelist Companion is now second edition is now available in all formats at swordsgold.shop. And if you happen to be in Madison, Wisconsin, in the middle of July, I am doing a seminar there July 15th and 16th called Maya versus the Italians, a weekend with Guy Windsor and Chris Vanslenbrook. And it's our plan to compare and contrast Maya's rapier with Capoferro's rapier and Maya's longsword with Fiore's longsword. And in general, we're going to have an awful lot of fun. So join us if you can. You can find the details at guywindsor.net forward slash Madison. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Sarah Lewis, who is a neuroscientist specializing in the biology of childhood movement disorders and a longtime historical martial artist starting in the SCA in 1999, where she is known as Perrin de la Serena and in historical martial arts since 2016 with the Phoenix Society for Historical Swordsmanship. She has written many articles on improving diversity and inclusiveness in historical martial arts and has written reports on the challenges facing women rapier fences in the SCA. She has also produced a series of videos on applying the neuroscience of learning motor skills to teaching historical combat. So that's an awful lot of introduction and we have a lot to talk about. So without further ado, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So whereabouts in the world are you? So I am in Phoenix, Arizona in the United States. Uh, so that's the really hot part of the Southwest. So it's not uncommon for it to get 120 Fahrenheit or I think that's 140 or 49 Celsius. Um, wow, that's pretty hot. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the hot part. Okay. So I'm, I take it you don't do a great deal of training outside in summer. We do not. Um, so we have a lot of um, off time, I would say, where we go inside, read books or, you know, do other things. Okay. It's like the reverse of Finland, where winter is the time you can't train outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get into historical martial arts all those years ago? So I was sitting in a, a restaurant studying. I was in high school. And a bunch of people came in having the time of their lives. And um, I was in a rural area. So people having a good time was a reason to just go over and get involved. Okay. And when they mentioned that they were doing sword fighting, you know, my ears perked way, way up uh, because I'd always been in, interested in martial arts, um, but there wasn't the ability for me to access it. Like it was not something that we could afford. Um, and my parents just weren't okay with that. But I was like, no, this is history. I can go do this. Right. So it was something that I was all <laughs> of a sudden able to have access to playing with swords. And I kept at it because I love it. Yeah. Okay. So that was 1999. So that was the SCA, was it? Yes, it was. And was that also in Phoenix? That was in Lake Havasu City, so the even hotter part okay. of Arizona. So, yeah. Okay, so not, not too far away. Okay, so is, is that group still going? Um, that original group is not still going, actually. Okay. But I've traveled to different parts of the state and participated in other groups within there. Okay. It's actually really nice to have someone on the show who started training in the previous century, because um, you know, <laughs> I started historical martial arts in about 1993, and most of the people who I interview started sometime in the last 15 years. And it's like, ah, you know, it's really nice to see the newcomers, but, but it's also really nice to see some of the old guard. Um, so you've been training for quite a while. 
but you've taken a break recently for a training injury. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to have to be brief and, and try to keep it uh, contextual. So we have a process in the SCA where we test that somebody is basically safe to participate in tournaments or these melees where we have these group battles. And so it's this process where we basically check for safety. Mm-hmm. And as part of that process, the person who was running the situation, um, I was sort of like the training dummy in this scenario, right. uh, told the person going through this test t- that to hit me harder. Um, why? And Sorry, can I just ask why? As far as I can tell, his rationale is that he was afraid I was going too easy on this person. Um, and so it was the, we want to make sure that he's using safe calibration. So hit harder so that we know that, you know, she's calling you if you're hitting too hard, which was ridiculous because he wasn't. That's, and that's, so that's, that's a little bit like saying we have to make sure you can drive on this road. And to yes. make sure you can drive on this road, we need you to drive through this fence on the side of the road. Yes. Yes. That is exactly how ridiculous this is. Um, okay. And so there's no way you can look at this and not go, okay, somebody was engineering a scenario without using good judgment where somebody could get hurt and actually did. So, um, you know, when you tell somebody to keep hitting harder and harder until somebody cries uncle, um, when they're focusing on this other aspect, like, you know, okay, I have to make sure that I'm providing the right pressure. I have to make sure I'm looking for safety things. Like my mind's on something else. It's not yeah. on, Hey, wait a minute. Is this an escalating situation? And why might that be? So, so yeah, there was a, a whiplash injury as part of that, but also, um, a mental trauma. So all of a sudden the situation that I had been participating in for a while where I knew there was these safety ropes, like I knew that I could, you know, go full force and trust people to pull their shots and and to have my best interest in mind um, was removed. And, you know, that was a very traumatic experience. And I had all of the mental issues that came with that as well. Okay. Um, Can we just start with the physical stuff? Um, So how exactly were you hit? It was a descending hit with a longsword, um, and so that created a whiplash. Uh, so how he was hitting you, hit you like on the top of the head with a longsword. Yep. yep. And that created a whiplash injury. Yes. Huh. That 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 is insane. Yes. <laughs> um, I, and, I, I, I shouldn't know, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm just like I'm, I mean I have seen thousands upon thousands of longsword interactions at every level of intensity. Mm-hmm. And I have never seen a whiplash injury. Yes. So I will say that my helmet did an excellent job of uh, stopping the concussive force. Right. But um, I read somewhere that women are more susceptible to whiplash injuries because they don't have as strong of neck muscles. Right. And so like the protective gear took up the that concussive movement. But, you know, when your head very rapidly ah, moves back and the weight forth, of the helmet also. Yes. So what, what kind yes. of helmet were you wearing? Oh, I don't even remember offhand, uh, but it was something that um, I had picked up for HEMA longsword and using in that tournament setting. So, but can I, it, was it a modified fencing mask or was nope. it something else? Okay, so it was, it was a, built like a helmet with maybe a perforated faceplate or something. Oh, no, like no, that. no. It was a, uh, a, you know, commercial fencing helmet, um, but it was the 350 Newton rated i had you know gel pad rugby helmet underneath to make sure that it okay was so, right so it was a, a fencing mask yes 
A modified fantasy class. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I, I misunderstood you before. I thought you said it wasn't one. Um, okay. So that shouldn't have been terribly heavy. No. Huh. Okay. So you got so basically in a longsword free fencing test environment where you're testing the person's safety, mm-hmm. the person supposedly in charge deliberately escalated the level of force that the student was doing. Yeah. Now, and to my and- to my mind, the person the student was doing what he was told by yes. somebody who he was led to believe was a competent authority. Yes, and the student actually said, no, I'm not comfortable with this uh, twice and was told, no, you will do this. Wow. Um, so even over the student objectives, it was, or objections, it was the, nope, nope, we're doing this. Um, and at the same time, I was getting instruction to, yeah, go ahead and push him a little harder. Uh, see what he does, see how he reacts. This is mental. So, yes, it was... It was absolutely a situation of the somebody was playing games um, with the individuals involved. Do you, do you do you suspect malicious intent behind the person running the thing? At least at a subconscious level. Okay, because um, obviously, you know, if if a similar injury occurred while you were having a great time in a fencing match and just something bad happened, it would be a very different psychological experience. So absolutely. So, do you feel comfortable unpacking some of the sort of psychological impact of what occurred? Yeah, I mean, the it was definitely um, a learning experience to you know experience trauma personally rather than from an academic sense. Um, but what your brain basically does is it all of a sudden starts reevaluating all of these contexts that you've experienced before and going, well, wait a minute. maybe this is a threat, you know, maybe this isn't safe in the way that you thought it was. And so it's a worldview perspective change that can be very intrusive. Like, you know, when you're minding your own business, all of a sudden something that had been perfectly benign, uh, all of a sudden becomes um, a potential danger. Right. Okay. So, So basically ups your paranoia levels. Quite a bit, quite a bit. And when all of a sudden it's the, you know, maybe you can't trust the people who are in charge of your safety in this context, it's very hard to be like, wow, okay, I, I need that basic reassurance to, you know, go in there and let people hit me about the head and shoulders. So, of course, um, leaving aside the sort of physical equipment side of things, um, are you aware of anything that has been done to improve the environment so that that sort of thing won't happen again? So um, I reported the issue um, and the leadership sort of like took statements from other people and their ultimate conclusion was, well, we don't want to be biased, so we're not going to do anything. And that is an inherently biased stance to take um, of the, well, it's your problem, not our problem. Um, Okay. So, so you, you took it upstairs. mm -hmm. Um, and then they took statements from everyone involved and then decided that they weren't going to rule on anything. Basically. What, what like could it, they have done instead? Well, um, I think that if they had some guiding, uh, you know, had sat down in, in advance and been like, okay, so, you know, if people uh, break the rules or do something unsafe or, you know, use a position of being the, the teacher, the um 
person in charge of safety here for ill intent, you know, we ought to know how we're going to respond to this rather than just sort of <clears throat> trying to figure it out on the fly, you know, when you're busy, when the situation has all of these messy components to it, you know, there's people involved, there might be different sure. perspectives. So I think that, you know, something that could have been done is, you know, in advance say, we don't tolerate this. Like this could easily sure. be, you know, uh, harassment at the very least. So we have, this is the consequences for harassment. I, I was thinking more along the lines of having taken the statement. So after the fact, what options were open to them that they could have proceeded with, but they didn't? I would say I expected um, there to be some conversations of the, hey, by the way, everyone, we don't use, you know, these sort of, uh, you don't use your position of, you know, running a test like this to make people do things that are not safe. Um, or, hey, like, you have a problem, we need to have a conversation with you about it. Or, hey, maybe you shouldn't be in this authority position, um, and we'll relieve you of this duty. So they could have relieved the person who ran the test um, of their authority? Yes. And so okay. they got like a six-month, hey, you know, don't run these tests for a little bit. But that is, you know... That's incredibly it. yeah that was it um but also like there was no this person's being punished like that people could look to and go hey you know bad apples will receive consequences i mean that, there there are a couple of sort of options there to my mind one mm -hmm. is um it was due to inexperience or poor training on that person's part and so a retraining thing might have been a sufficient response Mm -hmm. If there was no ill intent or if there's ill intent, if it was my school, I'd just kick him out. Yeah. End off. That is absolutely an option. Huh. Um, did they, did they find ill intent? I mean, you clearly suspect it. I suspect ill intent. <clears throat> I cited uh, previous um, microaggressions and other issues with this individual. And so they're like, oh, it's a personality conflict then. And just sort of was like, again, that's your problem, not our problem. And, I think that labeling something as a personality conflict when indeed it's a imbalance of power, uh, it's somebody mm. who's, you know, doing harassing behavior, that's personality conflict is a code for, you know, um, there's yeah, a bigger <laughs> problem and the, and the system is encouraging it, but like we can't even touch this mess. Like, yeah, look, I mean, personality conflicts occur between equals. Yes. As soon as you have, as soon as you have an imbalance in the, in the power dynamic, a personality conflict is not necessarily automatically abusive, but it's certainly it's it's certainly not something that is just peers being unpleasant to each other. Right, and personality conflict suggests that that's something that can be like negotiated or resolved within right. those two people. It also, also suggests that it's this part is you know fifty percent your fault. Yeah, <laughs> which. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound to me like that's the case. If there was somebody who was appointed to be in charge of safety in that environment and everyone involved was doing what they were told. Mm -hmm. then they have responsibility for then, the consequences yeah. of those actions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I, take it, I take it you don't want to name this person. I'm happy to name this person. So oh, go ahead. Yeah, go in ahead, the SCA, then. they're known as uh, Roland De Winter. 
Um, and I've been happy telling the story because if I bring it up to the authorities and say, hey, you know, there's this issue, um, I'm willing to let you handle it how you want. And they say, well, our goal is to not handle it. Then I'm like, cool, I'm going to handle it how I am able. And that's okay. naming names. No more okay. missing stairs. Quite right. Um, so is this person still active in the SCA? Yes. Okay. Um, so it's probably necessary that people are aware that there are issues with their... Um, did, did, did this person ever actually apologize to you? No. Fuck. I know. Oh, my God. I know. Okay. And there were no lack of opportunities, so... Right, I mean, including right then and there. So he. So when you actually got hit, I mean, immediately after you got hit, was that it? You were done, or did the injury manifest sl more slowly over time? More slowly over time. Okay. So you know, it was uh, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, having that racing heart, uh, you know, nightmares. It was waking up in the morning and being completely unable to move my head, neck, shoulders. You know. Oh God. Okay. Um, so, so I did follow up reports of the, like, here's how the injury is progressing. Um, but yeah. So, I, so right after the blow, you actually kept going for a bit or did, did everything stop right then? It kept going for a little bit. Like it was definitely like, you know, rocked my world. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> what on earth? Um, but yeah. But you weren't aware that you'd actually been injured in the moment. Okay. No, yeah. no, because See, it didn't feel like a concussion. So, right. you know. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the problem with a, a lots of these sorts of injuries. They only appear to be actually a problem some days, sometimes even weeks later. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of muscle injuries, but also like the adrenaline's going. Yeah. You know, but also, who would suspect such an environment, you know, or a situation? Right. It's bonkers. But also, it's, I think it's probably a good idea for the people listening that we flag up the fact that you can be injured while fencing and not realize until the next day or the day after. Absolutely. Um, okay because we tend to think of okay fencing injury like I mean I remember one time I got a finger broken I knew about it right then and there there was there was no carrying on after that <laughs> um, but yes these these sort of neck injuries can particularly necks I think can manifest more slowly so um, how are you recovering from it physically um, I'm at this point, actually doing pretty well. So like it, it ended up being a sort of long process with a lot of uh, different specialists and uh, to, to try to like break down that scar tissue. And now I'm in that rebuilding state doing physical therapy um, and, you know, gearing up to, to feel safe to do that again with uh, trusted individuals and kind of get my feet back under me. But it's been a long process. Right. Because somebody I interviewed recently um is um, she's very vulnerable to having her retinas detached, mm. right? And she realized this when she went to an ophthalmology exam. And that was basically, that put the kibosh on her fencing career. Like that's basically, a, until they come up with some absolutely astonishing head protection thing where you can take a light tap with a long sword with no risk of retinal detachment for her, then she ain't getting hit in the head ever again, hopefully. Yeah, um, yeah. So do you think you'll be able to train your neck up to the point where you can safely fence rape your longsword? Oh, probably. Um, so, you know, there's definitely been times in my past where I can look to and it's like, okay, I got that knee injury. And, you know, then I started doing strength training and was able to, you know, move mm -hmm. on without that um, 
injury being a problem anymore. Necks are trickier, but it's not insurmountable. Excellent. Good. So so we can expect you sort of fencing fit at some point. At some point. I'd love that. And any, any timeline? I'm going to say no, because... Because uh, you don't want to yeah. jinx it. Yeah. Fair. I don't want to jinx it. Yeah. And it's best to take things really, really carefully. Yes. Particularly with necks. Um, okay. So what are you doing about the... Um, the mental aspects of the injury? I would uh, say that, you know, seeing a therapist, you know, being really open about that uh, helped me process through those things. But what it kind of gave me was the ability to be vulnerable about this, to, to talk right. about this. And, you know, that's had a couple of different effects. Uh, one is the, you know, bringing some attention to these issues, which, you know, if anybody can point to my story and go, this is why we should care about these things, then I consider it a net win. Um, but also by being vulnerable, you get more help and yeah. people relate to you and they're able to say, actually, like, you're not alone. Um, and having that community, having that support by being open with it has been very helpful. Excellent. Okay. Yes. So... Um, you think you'll, well, when your neck is physically recovered, you think your spirit will be sufficiently emotionally recovered that you'll feel okay fencing someone who actually you know and like and trust? Yes. I will have Excellent. to be, okay. I think, picky for a while. And um, I think I probably won't go back to that same environment. But, you know, there's there's other places sure. to go. Um, Absolutely. And, and can I say, I am picky. I am always picky. I've only got one head. Right. Yes. And I've not had an experience like yours, and I am still picky. Yes, so, I, I use my brain a lot. I need it. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Don't 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 feel the slightest bit uh, awkward about being super picky. Mm-hmm. It is it is essential to longevity in the art of arms. I think. Yes. Because there are some complete assholes out there who will enjoy hurting you. Unfortunately, yes. Um. Um. Okay, so what do you think we can do to mitigate or prevent similar incidents? Yeah, so um, I had briefly mentioned the idea of the the missing stare, <clears throat> and yeah. this is this comes from a, a blog uh, that you know anybody can look up and get more information. But basically, it comes down to the you know if you've got a staircase and there's a missing stair, at some point you learn to step around it. Or if you have a guest over, you go, okay, you know, the bathroom's up there. By the way, watch the missing stair. And this manifests in a community of the, you've got somebody who knows, you know, is a problem. So, you know, and maybe this is person hits women too hard. Um, And so a woman comes in and you kind of warn her against him. Like, hey, by the way, like, watch out for this person. Maybe not fight him. But that doesn't fix the problem. Uh, that puts all of the burden onto the uh, victim or the potential victim. It makes it their problem, not an our problem. And it would be so much better if as a community, like you came together, you fixed the stare rather than having to you remember to remind everybody or when something bad happens, go, oh, wow, this completely foreseeable consequence. Gee, you right. know. Um, so, yeah, I would say taking the stance of this is not your problem for reporting this issue or having this situation. It's our problem. We did something that we weren't upfront enough about what our expectations were. We weren't quick to say, hey, that's not acceptable and provide a meaningful consequence. 
Um, we didn't have conversations to say that you should expect to not be treated this way. And if you are getting like these, these sort of red flags, you know, you should feel comfortable talking about it, bringing up that situation and being taken seriously. Um, so yeah, the, the leaders taking these concerns seriously, demonstrating that they will provide meaningful action about it and that it's not just your problem. It's that, you know, mm. the community is invested in it. Yeah, and then, and one obvious thing would be to make sure this winter fellow's not welcome anywhere where there are swords. For instance, that would be that, that would, would be help. a meaningful action that the community can take. Um, it also strikes me that okay, the the authorities within the organisation have the responsibility to look for and get rid of problem people, right? Or look for and retrain if possible. Retrain people. if possible. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, but that process is never going to be perfect because very often people appear absolutely fine until they're in that one situation which they think they can get away with something and then it happens. So it can, it can happen from out of the blue. So one thing that it might be a useful thing to incorporate would be training students to say no. So, for example, the guy who hit you said, try to say no twice. Yes. If he had been... Which, is, which suggests that he was not he was not there to try and hurt you, right? Um, and I, I I do also wonder what's happened to his mental health regarding fencing in, in this. Cause... Yeah, I've I've tried to you know protect that person from this as much as possible right. because I sure. do not hold him accountable for this at all. Right. But wouldn't it be useful if people were trained how to actually say no? Like, if this is a red flag for you, boom, say no. So, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. um, when you said these things happen out of the blue, I actually kind of had that internal laugh. Because you get a group of women together, and they will have all keyed into the same problematic people. And okay. so, you know, some of these guys are like, oh, hey, this happened out of the blue. And all of these people who, you know, had read the situation differently because of their different life experiences were going, that was not unexpected. Like, okay. so I feel like also there were times where, you know, this individual I had problems with, I was like, hey, you're hitting too hard. And, or, you know, tried to say, I'm not comfortable fighting you right now. And those were met with disdain. Like those concerns right. were not taken seriously. So you can learn to say no all you want, but if the people who say this is a problem aren't being listened to, it doesn't yeah, yeah. matter. That, then of course that doesn't help. Sure. Right. Because right. part of that, part of that, it's okay to say no thing includes the assumption that there will be no negative consequences for you for saying no. Right. Yes. It's, 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 you're not going to get looked down on as being not sufficiently brave or. Right. Right. That's and when you, you know, you're kind of in a sword swinging community and you're a woman, there's kind of some expectations that you're going to be able to, to, you know, take it, uh, just like any man could. And so there is that sort of like social stigma of the, you know, if you speak up, if you say you have a problem, uh, mm -hmm. is it your problem or is it our problem? So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, by the way, like, it's, it's perfectly all right to laugh at me on my show. That's fine. You can go ahead and do it out loud next time. 
I'm like, was this the cue to insert maniacal laughter? Yeah, but no, no, no. no I, just I, you said you said you laughed. You laughed silently in your head. Okay, okay. Next time I say something stupid, just laugh at me out loud. Yeah, it's yeah. But <laughs> I, I just thought it was it was very telling that the like sure. it came out of the blue. It's like the oftentimes these don't. Um, sure. It's just a matter of are you listening to what you know people are saying about their concerns? Are you giving them a, an ability to do so? I, I think maybe the key thing is 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 creating the channel for those concerns to be aired through, because yes. because I you, you do sometimes see like if a person doesn't feel comfortable in an environment, maybe because they've experienced something bad. The problem is there's no one they feel they can trust in that environment to say it to. Yeah, or that something meaningful will happen if they do bring it up. Right. Um, or that they won't be you know treated as creating drama or having a you know, you problem, not an us problem. So yeah, I mean, one of the difficulties I had running my school was was at least a few times I was told about problematic behaviour so long after the fact that I actually couldn't do anything because maybe the person had moved on to another club or gone somewhere else or whatever. So, yeah. and if I'd known at the time, I might have been able to do something about it, but it didn't actually filter its way through to me because again. When I set up my school, I didn't know anything about how to set up a school. I just, you know, I wanted to teach historical martial arts for a living. And so I just went and did that. And Kaya Sadowski hadn't written his book, Fear is the Mind Killer, yet, which tells you how to set things up so that you have these. Read this book, people. Read yes. this book. Yes. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, so any, any concrete bits of advice you would have for people to avoid what happened to you? Um. I mean, seriously, read, read the book. Um, but also the, you know, you mentioned that people would bring things up that happened way after you had the ability to deal with it. But how you respond when they do bring it up to be like, yes, I'm so glad you brought this to me. Like, yeah. I, I might not have anything I can do now, but like, this is something I'll look for in the future. Like, this gives me some ideas of what I want to be prepared for uh, or what to look for. So you know, uh, creating sort of like a plan of the, this is how I'm going to respond if somebody brings something up. Sure. Or being very proactive of the, hey, like I observe something. I'm not sure if it's a problem or not, but I'm going to be the one to bring it up rather than expect somebody to always come to me. Sure. Um, so there's, I think, a lot that leadership can do to set the, um, set the tone for it's safe to bring these things to me and you will be taken seriously. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so slight sidetrack, um, well, not a sidetrack really. It's actually kind of related to getting hit in the head. How you're a neuroscientist, an actual mm -hmm. proper brain person. Yes. So how do we actually learn motor skills? So, um, I'm going to use an analogy. So think about like a flat, you know, sandy plain and you're mm -hmm. trying to run water over it. And basically the water's just kind of spread out everywhere and sit there and it's not going to create very much meaningful movement and action. So what you need to do is you need to create these channels. You need to create these pathways that are mm -hmm. going to sort of drive it in the directions that you want. Um, and this kind of takes two forms. So the first form is that you figure out what you don't want to do. Um, so this is kind of like building your little hills. So you try something out and it does not work right. And so you kind of go, okay, we'll mount a little sand there. That's not good. Uh, you find something and it's successful and you go, yes, that works. So you kind of dig it in a little bit. And 
it's not a like one time process. It's very iterative. It's very much so like the, oh, I tried out this and it didn't work right in this context, but it worked in this context. Um, so you kind of have all of these different options that you can, you can run through and you find something that really works. And so you kind of dig in and you do that repetition. And so you, you know, dig that channel, dig that channel and, you know, the water runs much faster. You get a very fast directed flow. Um, and you can see this in children, uh, as well. So if you want to learn how people learn motor skills, like play with kids, um, so when they're very young, like the first thing that they have to get is preschool skills, preschools, like how does your body even move? Um, right. and so this is very play directed behavior. This is very like exploring your body, climbing up on things, falling off of them. Um, and just the, you know, learning how your body moves and the joy of it. Um, then- and also like figuring out what, what's you and what isn't. I mean, I, I have two daughters and Honestly, looking after them when they were very little completely changed my way of teaching. Yes. Right? Like, one time when my eldest was about four weeks old, something like that, she was a bit upset and she needed to be kind of soothed and calm and and so she'd go to sleep. And there were these things flapping around in front of her face that were just really, really scary and weird. And like, ah, what's around? Right? And of course... They were, they were her hands. (laughs) So just, just gently holding her hands and holding her hands against her body... Oh, those scary, stupid things went away. I can relax now because <laughs> mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. hadn't yet figured out that these scary, flappy things are actually under her control. And when she gets upset and waves her arms around, that's what's flapping around in front of her face. Yes, yes, that's the best. Um, but the you know what works for you? It's like okay, well, you've got uh, two children of like different shapes and sizes or different yeah. like joint mobilities like mm-hmm. the way that each person learns to move is very unique to that person and their right. biomechanics um and of course you know when they become teenagers and everything shoots up and changes they have to go back to preschool skills because they're tripping yeah. all over their feet um so every time there's a big body change like you kind of have to go back to that idea of okay how does this body move yeah um but so after that sort of you know figuring out general movement Um, then it's the, okay, well, what works for me and my body, like, and all of the different permutations and that variability of the, okay, well, if I, you know, change the angle of my hand, it's in this way, like it's better for something that's coming at this angle versus this angle. Um, so being able to adapt to a changing situation is a very variable kind of, uh, use of your motor programming. Um, and then sort of once you have the different things that work for you, then training that, you know, with a very, uh, precision practice based to hone it in so that it becomes that like reflective, reflexive, fast response. Um, but you can't jump ahead to that. You can't be like, okay, so you're going to do lunge and now you're going to do 30 lunges because then you'll be able to do a lunge correctly. It's the, you know, you're going to need to make sure that when you lunge, you actually know where your body is. Um, and then after you have kind of a grounding of that, the, well, there's not one lunge because you might be targeting different body areas. You might be protecting against shots coming in at different angles. Um, you might have a different follow-up that you have planned. You know, you're going to lunge differently if you're planning to then like cross and lunge again versus if the, if it's a quick lunge and you're trying to get out of there and recognizing that variability 
and then going, okay, so now we're going to drill this particular thing to get that locked in um, after you've created your sort of variable responses. Yeah. I, when I'm teaching students, I very often have people who have never done any kind of physical activity before, mm-hmm. never deliberately learned any physical skills except maybe typing. Mm-hmm. And they might be 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. And so I find it really useful to get, you know, always include a warm up, which includes all sorts of different, quite simple motions that, that they can sort of practice moving their body in these various different ways so that they're not, they, they, they can just concentrate on paying attention to what their body is doing. And they're not actually trying to do some complicated and quite specific fencing thing. They're just practicing making their arm go in the right direction at the right time. Yes. Yes. Um, I find that really helpful. Speeds things up a lot. Totally agree. That is a great tool for that. Um, so what is goal-directed fencing? So uh, goal-directed is kind of a term that's used pretty broadly in a bunch of different contexts. But basically what it comes down to is um, that the student is going to set their goals. Like there's going to be a particular situation potentially that they need help with or an outcome they're looking to achieve. And so you basically start with that end in mind. You plan whatever activities are going to get you to that point. um, And then you do them and then you monitor your progress and kind of use that to, to sort of like change how you're targeting your goal. So a non-fencing example would be, I want to learn to make bread. And so you, um, you go, okay, cool. I'm going to research different ways of making bread. I'm going to practice these different recipes. Um, I'm going to eat my bread. <laughs> I'm going to have other people eat my bread. Um, I'm going to get feedback. I'm going to, you know, ch- change from things here. And I'm going to create like my happy bread recipe. Um, in fencing, it's going to be more of the, okay, well, I realize that I'm struggling to maintain a strong parry against somebody who's stronger or taller than me is, is something I get asked about a lot. Um, and so like, I'm going to figure out how to get situations where I can practice that skill. Um, I'm going to, so, you know, identifying drills that will be useful for doing that, but also the, okay, outside of fencing, you know, maybe I do a little bit of strength training or, you know, and then the instructor gets involved with giving you feedback of the, well, you know, one problem that you might be having is that you're bending things, uh, when you kind of receive that impact, uh, and, you know, once you start bending, you're going to keep going. And so you're collapsing because of the way you're responding to this uh, situation. And so basically identifying that problem and using activities, uh, you know, designing training around meeting that goal. And, you know, right. whether or not you're seeing improvement in that situation lets you know how it's going. Yeah, I, I think I use... Basically, a similar approach where anytime any student is doing anything, there should always be a very clear objective in mind. So they might be doing a particular drill, making sure that they're getting their measure correct. And or they might be doing the exact same drill, but with the intention of getting their timing correct or their point control correct or, or some other thing. But Absolutely. success is determined by what the goal is, not by what the drill looks like. Yes, exactly. And the student needs to know what the goal is right. in order to be empowered in their learning and invested mm. in it. Right. Um, but also the, you know, you can run a, goal, a drill 30 times, but if you don't go in with intention um, and you don't get 
feedback that lets you know whether you're meeting that goal. Right. Um, you're just not going to learn effectively. Yeah, it's a waste you know, of time. Going through the motions. Yeah. 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 yeah I, 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 when I'm sort of wandering around the class, what I'll normally be asking students is, "What are you working on?" Yes. And then, That's then such the a whole good class question. might, yeah, the whole class might be doing the same drill, but I'll get 25 different answers because this one is working on a specific mechanical issue, and this one is working on just keeping their breathing consistent as they do the drill. And this other one is doing using the, have maybe not seen the drill that many times before. And they're just trying to learn the choreography of the drill. And that is a perfectly legitimate goal, obviously, like just learn the choreography of the drill. That's a perfectly good starting point. Um, And then, then the trick is to kind of figure out how to adjust things so that they get the feedback they need so that they know whether they're getting it, whether they're heading in the right direction or not. Yes. And, you know, being able to express what it is that you're working on um, mm. so that your partner hears what it is um, and can kind of assist you and give you feedback. So, you know, their perspective on that can make a huge difference in whether or not you're, you know, what you're getting out of that and how that's helping you improve. Um, yeah. So we've sort of gotten into the pedagogical side of things, mm-hmm. um, which brings me in mind of Okay, that whole business of feedback is really critical, right? And in fencing, like the most obvious and in some, if it's used properly, the most effective feedback is if things go well, you hit the other person and don't get hit. And if things go badly, you get hit, right? Which has sort of devolved into a very crude and rather stupid the whack don't die method, right? So I interviewed psychologist Carrie Holman on why the hit them until they get it right approach is often counterproductive from a psychological perspective. Um, So we've got into that in some detail in in that episode. Yes. Um, What are your thoughts on this? Yes. So basically we are equipped to work with two different kinds of feedback, uh, positive feedback and negative feedback. Uh, And, of the two, the positive feedback is the more useful one. Um, what am I doing right? And there can be yeah. so many different things that you're getting right that still don't give you like your outcome. And as you know, in the moment, and as somebody who's like in that perspective, it can be really hard for you to tell well what's right and what's wrong without some sort of external like check and that could be a mirror sometimes or a video recording but really the most useful is your instructor or your partner uh saying okay so you know what you had right was this this and this um and if you you know this is the part where you're having a little bit of trouble and providing the actionable feedback so rather than the Okay, so don't do this. Oh yeah, do yeah. This. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't implement a negative. No good yeah, at yeah. it. D- do not imagine a pink elephant. No, stop imagining pink elephant. Oh no, it's a pink elephant, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's classic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, we sometimes I think forget this uh, in fencing. It's the you know, oh well, don't don't drop your arm, and it's like no. <laughs> Uh, give the actionable feedback of the, you know what, you want to make sure that your hand is above your shoulder when you're in this position uh, at all times. And so that gives you like something that you can actually like pay attention to Mm -hmm. um, and look for rather than the don't drop your arm. It's the, it should be above this level. Yeah. Or or push the hand forward and up or whatever, but but a, a positive actionable statement. Ideally, I find that it's more effective if there's an external focus. So rather than 
push the hand. It's I would do something more like point it to that thing on the wall, right? So it's an yes. external focus because I find that most students then pick up the movement much more cleanly because if your yeah. intention sort of stops at the end of your finger, then I don't know, it's, it's, it's not how children learn to walk. They don't learn to walk by consciously controlling their feet. They learn to walk no. by, by getting from A to B because they see other people do it and they, their great big head relative to their body means they're going to fall down really quickly if they get it even slightly wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the, the other thing I will say from a neuroscience perspective mm -hmm. is um, the negative feedback gets amplified in a really wild kind of way. So even though the positive feedback is the more useful, actionable, mm -hmm. and like building what you want to see, the negative is felt stronger. Um, yeah. So that getting hit and your brain can't really distinguish the difference between, oh, that's the, I didn't do it right. And the, I'm not good at doing this. Or even the social rejection aspect of the, I don't belong here. Like yeah. it all feels the same. Um, it's all the same neurochemistry and circuitry. And um, so it can be very challenging for somebody who's had, you know, um, a bad day where they felt like they, they didn't belong or they were getting pushed around. And now they're in a situation where they're making mistakes and it just gets amplified. Um, or, you know, they've had a, a trauma and all of a sudden, like, they get hit and they're like, that set off things I had no idea about. They People experience it differently. Sure. And, and there's, a, there's an optimal rate of failure, which we can sort mm -hmm. of approximate for most people most of the time, depending on the drill, of being maybe eight successes for two failures, something like that. Right. But for some people, some people need 20 successes for one failure and other people are quite happy with a 50-50 ratio. It really depends on the person, the circumstance and what they're doing. And the same person in different circumstances will have different optimal rates of failure. Finding the right one for a given student is super hard. Well, and I also say that there's different necessary rates of success for different points of the learning process. Sure. So when you're still trying to figure out pre-skills, like you need 100% success. Like everything mm. has to be, it's whatever you're doing is fine. Yeah. Um, and as you're trying things out, as you're being variable, like you want to have, again, like, okay, there's a lot of different successes. They may look different, but like, okay, you know, things are working out. You've, you've got options. Um, when you're doing that final refinement, you, you know, doing that like slightly more uh, critical, a higher level of failure to really hone it in is fine. So it depends not just on the student and what they're bringing with them on that given day, but also like where they are in learning that particular skill. Right. And again, that's another useful thing for the warm up because yes. there's no, there's no failure in it at all. Right. Um, there's, there's sometimes physical challenge, but it's, it's absolutely clear that students, if, you know, if we're doing an, I know, a squat exercise and the, their knees shouldn't do a squat, they are supposed to not do it. Right. And, you know, maybe do some alternative action or, mm -hmm. or whatever. So it doesn't register as failure. It just registers as, okay, this is an area where I do this instead of that. And it's just normal. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, looking at this from, from a teacher's perspective of the, mm -hmm. okay, so whack, don't die is one tool in the toolbox. Um, it could be the right skill 
for, okay, we've done this action a bunch of times, and so you're refining it. And so this is where I let you know whether you've got it absolutely right, right or, or wrong. Um, but you have to have a really broad toolbox because there's so many different uh, ways people learn, sure. you know, where they are in the learning process. Like, you know, if, if you're using whack, don't die, oftentimes you're neglecting the other tools in your toolbox. And, sure. you know, you can be a better teacher than that. Right. Um, and also the, the whack part is an issue. Like yes. a carefully placed touch on the arm or the chest or the mask or whatever that just indicates that you didn't close the line properly is a totally mm-hmm. different thing to getting hit. Yes, it can be, particularly if yeah. you're just picking it up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so enough enough sort of presence and contact that they're aware of it. But yeah, it's... I, I can think of a couple of the training environments where it's, it is useful to put the student under that kind of psychological pressure, right? But that's that's rare, and for <laughs> only a few students, for only very specific things, and all only ever at a pretty damn high level. Right. And if that's like what you're using your environment for, like only those students who meet those criteria will succeed right. and stay. So yeah. you're missing out on all of these other individuals and what they would bring to the table so right yeah uh, which brings us neatly on to the inclusivity topic yes um right right you know the, the goal of this show is to improve diversity in historical martial arts right that's what i started it for um through representation which is why i make sure that more than half of the guests are women um you've done research on the attrition rates of women fencers as they progress through the sca Mm-hmm. So what are your findings and what can be done to improve the situation? I, I'm yes. sorry, I'm just, let me just clarify. I'm making the assumption that stuff that's likely to work for the SCA is also likely to work for what I think of as historical martial arts clubs, although the distinction isn't actually that clear in my head. So let's, you know, let's I, I initially became <clears throat> interested in this uh, question through academic medicine uh, and professional environments. So I would say that okay. it's sort of globally uh, yeah, globally applicable. Yeah, so HEMA, SCA, all of it. Um, The way the study was done was that I looked at uh, recognition at these sort of like different levels of advancement as a proxy for how the community viewed um, that person's abilities, uh, their teaching, and the time and energy they put into participation. So um, that's kind of generally what these different tiers are representing here. And what we found was that at that earliest time point where somebody like went through that safety test to see whether or not they were good to start participating in these tournaments and melees, uh, 40% of the participants were women. So um, there is, that's good. you know, yeah, that's, that's it's fantastic. There's at the beginning almost, you know, an equal representation of uh, women and men picking up the sword. Right. And, but when we looked at that sort of like top tier uh, those that are sort of like globally recognized, uh, only 15% were women. Wow. Yeah. So there was basically this this huge discrepancy between who was getting that top tier acknowledgement um, and looking at it over time, like, you know, the rate of whether or not this was improving or not wasn't changing. So, you know, at one fifth the rate of men being recognized, the women were being recognized with this award. 
Um, and so, you know, we kind of looked at the steps in between and found that that, you know, drop off that, that attrition rate was happening at every step. So it's not just like a, you know, okay, so when you get to that top, top here, can women compete? It's the, you know, they're getting, uh, nudged out like at these yeah. lower levels and nudged, nudged out is a very good way to put it. Cause it's not, out. it's, it's not, it's not. None shall pass. Girls aren't welcome here. It's just yeah. this sort of gentle little sort of no. This this environment doesn't really suit women so well. And da 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 da. And you know. yes, yes. And you know, it's it's kind of easy to go. Well, that person sort of made choices to do this other thing instead. It's like yes, you know, what you were offering them versus what was being offered elsewhere wasn't as attractive as you thought it was. Um, and the other thing that I kind of looked at in addition to that nudging out that retention idea was the time it took to go between these milestones and it took women 33% longer. And the way I designed that study, that was the same household. So it was like a couple and the man was being recognized, you know, in 60% of the time compared to what the women were doing. So, you know, I mental, that absolutely is. And so it's the, okay, so there's something wrong with the support that they're being given, mm-hmm. the training that they're being given to, you know, build their skills. Um, <clears throat> the There's something wrong with the criteria that are being applied to judge success. Like, you know, there's, there's little biases that have got to be built into there. Um, so, you know, looking at it from that standpoint, it was pretty clear that there was several things going on that was making it harder for women to get uh, recognized in that way, but also it was leading to a drop-off of their participation. Okay. So what can be done about it? I mean, it really... So we did a follow-up study, and we did a big survey where we asked questions about training environment satisfaction um, and you know feelings of whether or not you would be able to reach these levels of recognition. And do you even want to, right? Like, um, and we looked at all sorts of cofactors, uh, cofactors such as, you know, are you in a rural environment or an urban one where you might have more access to resources um, or uh, just all of these different things? Are, do you identify as a minority of some sort? And the biggest predictor of success of, that feeling of the, yeah, no, I can make this, or I want to participate, I don't want to, to leave, is whether or not they felt their training needs were being met. Right. So that suggests that it's not a issue of women being women. It's the, you're not giving them the tools to succeed. You're right. not developing the training in a way that is useful to a broader population. Um, and so that really kind of got me looking at the, okay, so maybe the big gap is this sort of lazy whack, don't die training approach mm-hmm. rather than the, you know, building a good, uh, toolbox of training tools and, you know, being really deliberate in that intention of making sure that you're meeting the needs of the individual student rather, uh, you know, and doing those goal directed trainings and, you know, helping them fill those gaps. So, okay. I have a lot to think about. You're making, you're making me, there are several different directions we could go. And I, I'm just trying to pick the best one. Um, Cause 
I'm really interested in uh, sort of actionable things, right? Theory is great, but to get more women hitting each other with swords, then there needs to be like specific things that people can choose to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and firstly, just slightly an aside to that, um, are these studies published somewhere? And can we put them in the show notes? I can put them in the show notes. So I cool. have uh, written them up for public consumption and I have right. links Excellent. and blog okay. so articles we'll, written so about we'll, them. So we'll put links in the show notes so people can find out, you know, your research methodology and the specific data and the results you've got, the analysis you've done, those results and what have you. Because yes. science is helpful. Right. Science is the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way. Um, okay. So the, the key thing you think based on your research is that the teaching methods and the sort of club culture uh, is what m- makes it likely that a woman will succeed or not succeed in a particular environment. Absolutely. Fair? Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, doing the work to set up a, a good environment where issues can be brought up and dealt with um, and also setting up an environment that is responsive to individuals training needs um, rather than just sort of like the, well, so we're just going to go through these things in a repetitive, but not necessarily like responsive kind of way. Um, will so good training will lead to good retention. Um, it's really not a yeah. magic formula. No, really not. Um, no. and I, I did find that as my, my, as my teaching skills got better. So my retention rates improved, <laughs> but that's entirely <laughs> anecdotal. I, I don't, I don't have data for that but that's just what i observed over time i i've observed it in different environments as well like when you provide value for the student they will come back and value right. is they learn and they enjoy learning yeah and again something that Hank kaya says is you need to provide a psychologically safe environment for learning physically dangerous things and a yep. physically safe environment for doing psychologically dangerous things that is so right. true yes yeah. genius Okay, so basically what we're saying is everyone should just go read Kaya's book. Well, but I think we also need to have a lot more resources to become good teachers and like mm-hmm. conversations about how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I produced a course on how to teach, which... Yes. Um, are you familiar with it? I saw it, but I haven't dug into it. But I'm presuming there's so many things that you weren't able to include for format and everything else. Um, no, I was just, just thinking it's basically... I think I think you'll like the content sufficiently because basically what you're saying, we seem to have a very similar idea as to basically training should be tailored to the individual student mm-hmm. and um, feedback mechanisms are essential and the you have to create the environment you want where the desired behavior is natural, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send you a link to it. You can... Yeah, I'll, I'll copy you on and you can have a, have a look through it and then tell me what you think. So I would be very interested to see... Uh, what's what you think is missing i would be delighted to do that yes fine okay i will i will will get that sorted and yeah because one of the great things about these online courses is you can update them quite easily Mm -hmm. so when i get new material to put on i will just update the course and everyone's on the course just gets the new material that's great yeah so um yeah because it's I, i started out writing it as a book and it didn't feel like it was a book it felt like it didn't work so i recast it as a course and i think the reason for doing that is because the change of medium changed expectations about finality 
You know, it's like you write the book on something, that's the last word. It's not the last word on the subject, but it kind of no. feels like it when you're writing it. Um, well, and also like my idea, my, my teaching toolbox, as I call it, like evolves, you know, every time I talk right. to somebody with new ideas or I do it this way and it's like, fantastic, let's add another thing into there. So I think teaching as a skill is something that is incredibly dynamic and just draws from everything. So Yeah. And you're on the Sword People platform. I am, yes. Excellent, good. So well, I, I can just comp you on that. It's fine, no problem. It's two clicks of the mouse. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. I love this. Uh, so do you have any sort of headline ideas for how to build a safe and inclusive training environment? Um, I would definitely say that whether or not you're treating the students with respect uh should kind of be a check-in question for everything that you do. Right. Um, you know, is the it, the way I'm doing this demonstration respectful? Like, is the way I'm greeting them when they come in with, you know, toilet paper in the bathroom and, like, right. you know, a, a place for their gear, like creating a place where they feel respected. Um, when somebody comes to me with a problem, like, you know, do – you know, does that, does that feel respectful? And I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, like, you know, for different environments and different people, but ultimately asking like, you know, will the student feel respected uh, as part of this and that they're getting, you know, their value and that it's okay to make mistakes and we're all helping each other out um, part of just how things are coming together, how the community is, is manifesting. So, and there's a lot of great advice in the book about specific aspects of that, of the um, creating that code of conduct, following it, talking about mm -hmm. the expectations, modeling it. Um, but also like, you know, Hey, as a teacher, I realized that I wasn't doing a very good job at understanding people who had the, this sort of challenge. And so this is how I went out and learned more about it. And I'm excited to, to share my own journey as, as a teacher and mm -hmm. um, being really open about those things. Okay, so um, you study the biology of childhood movement disorders, which I can imagine is can be quite heartbreaking at times. Yeah, it is. It is not for the faint of heart to work on these disorders. Um, so, but I imagine that's given you some insight and perspective as to what we could do better to help people who are living with movement disorders to, to learn sorts. Yeah. And not just movement disorders, but, you know, all sorts of different uh, physical challenges, sure. know, learning abilities. Um, and so, you know, I've worked with people who have uh, all sorts of different challenges um, in the sword fighting arena. So one example would be hypermobility. So they have lax joints. And so, you know, learning how to engage muscles to kind of keep the shoulder keep the from like... Place. Jumping out, yeah, like is is something that I've you know deliberately added to my toolkit of the you know understanding uh, that. So um, the the idea of learning the way the body is supposed to move in these circumstances and uh, kind of keeping an eye open for that and asking the question, you know, of the you know, what, how is this working for you? How does this feel? Um, what, what's making sense? What's not, what should we break down and talk about? And so, you know, somebody who's experiencing 
pain while they're doing something, maybe you can kind of go through different ways of doing that action or, okay, well, maybe we need to brace this in a certain way or, um, you know, oh, well, let's talk about how you would engage more of your core muscles to have your back do more of that supporting action Mm -hmm. rather than putting all of that work on your, you know, arms or your elbow joint. Um, So be asking lots of questions, really trying to put yourself into their shoes um, and see what they're seeing and, you know, experience what they're experiencing and then tailor the solutions for them. Yeah. One thing to add to that is like I had a student in class recently, very big guys, about six foot five um, Mm -hmm. and quite overweight. And he has had serious issues with his back and it was really helpful to him when at the beginning of the course I was teaching, we said, okay, everyone has, has a goal for the course. And he was, he started talking about his injuries. Well, I said, okay, well, how about your goal is you get through every class with minimal pain. He was like, I can do that. I was like, well, yeah, of course, let's, let's, let's work on that. And so while the topic of the course was how to teach, but his sort of personal goal for the course was to learn to do sword like stuff in a way that didn't hurt. <laughs> Which it, you wouldn't think, you know, you'd need to say that, but but it's sometimes people just need permission to focus on the thing that's actually really important. Yes, yes, and again, it's the coming back to those goal directed things. Right, the goals might really surprise you, um, yeah. but those are what's important for them. And sometimes it's the yeah, being able to do this without pain. Um, you know, I worked with somebody in a wheelchair, and sure. so like you know, needing to kind of like. Um, well, let me kind of, you know, squat down to that level and see what it's like to try to hold my sword, you know, with my pelvis immobilized and, you know, mm. what muscles do I need to be using to, to, to adapt to that action? Um, what, you know, movements are going to be sort of most useful because, you know, you're going to, you're, you're not going to spend as much time on footwork in that situation, but you're going to probably spend a lot more time thinking about body voids or, um, you know, really strong parries and uh, the ability to counterattack from there. So, you know, really taking that time to listen and see things from their perspective and understand their goals and go from there. So, right. Yeah. Okay. And and for people with, uh, I would say, different uh, learning styles or just, you know, uh, from a mental learning state, um, again, the bigger your toolbox, the better you are. So recognize that there's people who really can't hear words of do these things and translate that into movements. Right. Um, so having like, okay, well, let me show you. Uh, and then let me, you know, if with your permission, like actually physically move your body so that right. you can feel what that's like. Um, so, you know, being able to come at the problem from many, many different perspectives will help you find the right one for the right for that student cool um yeah so these are questions that i ask uh, almost all of my guests um the first is what's the best idea you haven't acted on yet so it kind of sounds like you might have beat me to it uh and that is a uh teaching the teachers event okay um where I would love to see it be not just like, here's my perspective on doing it, but like a bigger weekend event where you have all of these different people who have different uh, teaching styles, backgrounds, um, talking about different ways that they do things. So, you know, where you've got the preschool teacher, you've got the dog trader, you've got the professional athlete, and 
all of them taking on something that they feel like they do really well as a teacher so that you can go around and get all of these different toolboxes, have these conversations, um, and, you know, get the, those different perspectives and have that exchange of ideas, um, as, as a fun event. That so. sounds like, I, I, I'm not ahead of you. I haven't, I haven't even tried to organize a, a proper event like that. I mean, I've, I've taught classes myself and created an online course, but I haven't, yeah, event organization is its own separate skill and it's somewhere, something where I know that I don't have the necessary skill set and I'm just not the right sort of person. <laughs> I'm not the right personality type to organize an event. <laughs> but yeah, I would, I would really love to, to organize not just an event, okay. but also like uh, a place where, hey, I wrote this curriculum. You know, I wrote this lesson plan that mm -hmm. worked really, really well. And I want to share that. Um, and having, you know, teaching resources so that it's not a bunch of people trying to figure out how to run a sword school, run, you know, right. these, these tournaments and like, how am I going to bring new teaching ideas when I don't have that background? Um, now that is something that I have, I do hope that the sword people platform will do, right? There is a sort of teaching and instructing sort of sub forum. Where so the curriculum ideas there and everybody will be very excited. Uh, well, at least try. I'll be excited. And, um, okay. Well, I think, funny enough, though, one thing that I'm finding it's quite difficult to educate people on in using the platform itself is they used to, everyone is used to algorithms that throw stuff into your feed. And the better the algorithm knows you, the more likely you are to actually be interested in the stuff that it's throwing into your feed. Right. And the thing is, sort people doesn't have an algorithm. There is no feed other than what people you have chosen to follow are doing or what you know topics you have started are being commented on. So, so it requires the users to actually choose to follow specific topics or choose to follow specific people for anything to appear in their feed. So one thing I'm finding is, because a lot of people follow me because you know, it's my platform, uh, most, most of the people on there have been invited by me directly. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people follow me and so what I do is, is I try and follow everyone back. And then whenever anyone posts anything, I go and like comment on it or do something on it so that that action will appear in everybody else's feed so that, so that it'll, it'll get, oh. get the ball rolling. But it's, so you're the, you're the algorithm. You're the, at, at the moment, the yeah, yeah. And it, we, we will get to a critical mass and people will eventually learn that they actually need to actively follow the things they're interested in rather than just have the algorithm passively feed it to them. Yeah. Um, but I mean, once we get over that, that, we'll get that. Yeah, but knowing that this is a good place to share those ideas yeah. and having people hear this and going, well, I want to use that, I think makes the platform a lot more useful, you know, right. uh, useful of the, this is where I go for that information. This is where I go to share that information. Right. So. And there is a, there's a specific forum for people who want advice, which is separate to all the other ones, because the bane of the bloody internet is, you know, unsolicited advice. So if anyone, if yes. anyone gives you advice, right? Anywhere except where you've deliberately asked for it, that is a reportable offense in our code of conduct. Honestly, though, I feel like in real life, there just needs to be like a, uh, would you like advice or are you just expressing something, you know? Yeah. We could be better about that as humans. Yeah. We, we certainly could. Um, okay. My last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars or similar large sum of imaginary money to spend mm -hmm. improving historical martial arts worldwide. I think I have an idea of how you'll spend it, but 
Tell me. <laughs> uh, really, I, I think teaching the teachers is uh, going to have such a profound effect overall. Um, and so, you know, the idea of organizing events where people can come and learn all sorts of different takes, because teaching is not just like, okay, I have the content and I deliver it, you know, it's coaching, it's yeah. develop, learn, you know, learning how to develop it, it's learning how to support curiosity and, uh, you know, problem solving in a, in a fencing environment. Um, it's, you know, learning how to be a good training partner. Um, so all of these are like different components that get kind of lumped together with teaching. But having a place where you can kind of go and exchange those I, things that you've learned, these different perspectives, and it really, the, the data seems to suggest that that's going to be enormously helpful for um, creating good training and people will stick around and it will amplify throughout the community. Um, but I also feel like in addition to having the teachers go and learn, like then having um the ability to sort of help teachers travel to these areas right? Um, because there's nothing more exciting than a teacher who knows what they're doing, coming in and teaching you something new. Like right. that is just Hema Christmas. And, um, but not everybody can afford to do that. And teachers ought to be fairly compensated for putting in that time and energy to develop those things and to travel. Um, and I feel like so it's kind of, a, a rare privilege to be able to do that or to afford to do that. And if we could just throw a bunch of money into it, um, I feel like that would, uh, again, really help with those exchange of ideas, bringing instruction to places that might be a little bit more remote and not have those access to those resources would be very helpful. Yeah. I, one thing I'm working on is developing other sides of the business to the point where I can afford to travel and teach without actually having to get paid. Cause it's, it's a, it's a big constraint on any club that's trying to organize an event with me is that, you know, I need to get paid because this yep. is my job. Yep. Um, and it does make it very difficult for clubs to, you know, first there's the airfare, which is never a small amount of money unless it's oh, somewhere no. fairly local. And then there's, you know, I'm away from home for at least three or four days. So there's, there's you know, my time. And it would be really nice to not have to worry about the local club actually being able to find the money. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah. But also, like, I feel like it would give opportunities to a broader pool of teachers to be right. like, okay, so you have your choice of, you know, you can once a year or every two years afford to bring an instructor. Are you going to choose Guy Windsor or Sarah Lewis? Like, it's no, it's a no-brainer, right? Um, so giving... Yeah, Sarah every time, obviously. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sadly, that has not been true. So, you know, basically, if you have more opportunities, then you have a broader pool of ideas being shared. Mm -hmm. um, I think that will be a net win. So, so some kind of like scholarship program for teachers to travel. Yeah, or for clubs to to be able to pay for bringing in teachers. Okay. So, I think it would be a more a, a, a group directed uh, grant process and. Okay, so I immediately went to grants. <laughs> well, you're a scientist. <laughs> I'm a scientist. Um, yes. So, so some club somewhere decides they want a particular seminar with somebody and they can apply for a grant to pay somebody like me or you or whoever else to mm -hmm. fly and, and they will have the money to then pay for it. That's, yeah. that's, I mean, 
Given what that would do for my finances, that would be great. Yeah, please, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a hard sell on this idea. Um, but, yeah. you know, as somebody who started in a very rural area, like the ability to bring in teachers can be a very limiting teacher. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's something that I managed to do when I was running my school in Helsinki um, because I had enough students and living in a um, high cost of living country, they they could afford to pay the kind of money it would cost to fly somebody over from America or whatever else to do seminars. So we had at least three, usually four, sometimes five seminars with guest instructors every year and hugely valuable for me obviously, because mm-hmm. I was learning from these other instructors too. And yes. also hugely valuable for the students. Not least, yeah. so they got to see that, you know, I'm not the only instructor and the way I do things isn't the only way to do them. Right. No, and I mean, that's so important for a student to have lots of different models of success. Right. You know, because then they can see themselves in it, in some sort of successful role. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, so in that, in that sense, the grant giving body was my students. But it would be... It, that's not an option. Like if, if you happen to live in a country which has a low cost of living, or um, you know, and you're flying in somebody from I don't know, the United States or Europe or Canada or whatever, I mean, mm-hmm. it's you, you just, we're talking about the equivalent of like three months' salary for a person just for the, the air flight. <laughs> Effort yes. it's like ridiculous. Yes. So you know, it's not practical. But having having that fund available would would definitely help with that. And maybe some yeah. of the funds should go to organising this event you're talking about. Absolutely. So are you actually going to organize this event? Am I going to organize this event? I think you should. Uh, It's, it's one of those things of, you know, if there's enough interest um, and, you know, people who actually organize events and are good at it uh, are buying into that idea. Like that's something I could see taking forward. Uh, On the other hand, I'd have to balance that with that whole, you know, science life. So. Right. Me actually having a proper job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so just uh, we never actually really discussed your proper job, and it is extremely interesting. So, if you don't mind, what exactly do you do for a living? So, I work for um, a children's hospital, okay. and I uh, oversee research to understand genetic mechanisms of cerebral palsy. Wow. So we do genetic sequencing of individuals with cerebral palsy and uh, identify new genes that we didn't know could do something like that. Um, and then I take those genes into a fruit fly model and ask what happens when you change those genes. How does that affect the way the brain develops? How does that affect the way the animal moves? And, you know, looking at it all the way from that genetic uh, predisposition through how does this change uh, these different molecules? Um, how does that change the way these cells develop? How does that change the way that the circuitry develops? Um, and really trying to understand from the ground up, like how um, how the brain normally develops to be able to orchestrate these movements, to uh, inhibit them appropriately, to drive them appropriately. And... Um, from there, like, how do you try to get it back to normal? So, you know, within the flies, I'm creating a, a model of this particular movement disorder where you have these unwanted movements. Uh, and I'm actually, you know, from understanding what's going wrong with the molecules can then try to add in uh, compounds or do other modifications to try to make it better. 
you know, or understand if there's a second hit and what that might look like and how you can prevent these sorts of things. So, okay, and then so how do you take this information to the clinic? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, there's a long way from Drosophila to Homo sapiens. <laughs> so, so, so if, if I summarize it, you tell me if I'm getting it right. So you might, for example, find that adding a particular chemical reduces the symptoms. And then you might think, well, actually, maybe if we can get that chemical into human cells, that might have a similar effect. Yes. And, okay. you know, that's very akin to the way biomedical research is done uh, sure. for human disorders generally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, is it polite to ask, um, have you had any notable successes in this area? I have actually, so I'm. So uh, in which case, it's definitely polite to ask. <laughs> if the answer was no, I shouldn't have. Asked, I shouldn't have asked the question. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So I was a lead author on a Nature Genetics paper uh, demonstrating that there even is a genetic component to cerebral palsy, which was okay. kind of a big uh, change and paradigm shift. Right. Um, but I've been invited to, to give talks at uh, conferences for clinicians working in cerebral palsy, uh, you know, um, the Dystonia Foundation. So I'm actually an invited speaker to come and talk on this topic. Um, and I have numerous publications about it. Yeah. But, I mean, have you, have you managed to treat any? Have I managed uh, to treat any? any? Not well. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's I, kind I, of the more data needed, right? Yeah, because I mean, some um, friends of ours who have a daughter the same age as our eldest, um, their child has cerebral palsy, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's not terribly severe. Um, you know, some walking difficulties, some loss of use of the left hand, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, she goes to normal school and she can function just fine. Um, she just needs like in orthotics in her shoes and that kind of thing. So yeah, she I- got kind of lucky; she kind of dodged a bullet there. But, yeah. um, or, or was just grazed by it rather than in that. <laughs> a little, um, little evasion maneuver. But yeah. I will say, like, one of my current projects that I'm very excited about is taking what we already know about related uh, mm-hmm. brain disorders and saying, well, if you find a genetic finding, now you have treatment options that have been discovered for epilepsy or right. you know, these okay. other things, and you can try it here. So when you change the way you look at a problem, all of a sudden you might have solutions that were already yeah. figured out for this other thing. So Right, so if, if, if there's a similar ge- genetic component, then yes. it's likely that a treatment might work, or at least plausible yes. that the treatment will work. Okay. Yes, provided you get the information about genetics and as you know, part of your process of figuring out, well, okay, what do you have? How does it affect you? What do we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. What, what made you want to go into that particular area? So um, I got very interested in um, neurodevelopmental disorders uh, early on in life um, because I had numerous friends that have autism. Um, and But there was just so very little known about it or why there might be such a diversity in the way people... Um, it's brains develop, like, yeah. you know, and it's not always bad. Sometimes it's, you know, trying to optimize something that maybe doesn't need to be optimized anymore. And so that kind of drove my interest in it. Um, and I love what you can do with fruit flies. You can ask so many <laughs> yeah. questions so rapidly that you cannot do. So it's a very gratifying model organism when you come in, not knowing much at all. Um, right. 
because two weeks later you got an answer, you know, of some yeah. sort. It might not be a good one. Yeah, we did some we did some genetic manipulation of fruit flies when I was doing a bit of biology back in the day, and mm-hmm. yeah, so so much quicker than than doing it on I don't know sheep or yeah <laughs> any other rodents or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Wow, I, I sort of talked myself into a subject because I, I can actually go into the biology rabbit hole right now. I'm not sure whether the average listener will be like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were probably like, I, I think I think they were supposed to talk about swords. Why on earth are they talking about brains? And Well, you know, it's well, because without brains, swords don't work. No, they really don't. They really don't. <laughs> and believe it or not, like you use a lot of uh, parts of the brain that you don't even think about. To, mm-hmm. to do your fencing, to do your problem solving, to take in all of these variables and respond to them. So, yeah. Okay. I, I, I think we better wrap it up here or it's going to get I, very, I very so. technical. <laughs> but <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today, Sarah. It has been lovely to meet you. It was great. Thank you so much again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to David Ito who is a fire eater and epic coach and a former kendo player who plays with long swords based in Toronto, Canada. Yes, David has been on the show before. This is his second time, um, which, I mean, that must be his main claim to fame, right? He has appeared on episode 25 of this show. With the world reopening, David is living the life of a literary swashbuckler, fighting with swords, hanging out with glamorous show people and attending all the scandalous parties. Yes, you can tell when my guests send me stuff to say, can't you? <laughs> We have a lot of fun in our round two, and if you'd like to know whether he still does 100 burpees every morning, then you need to tune in to find out. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 